0: Democracy. A word derived from the Greek roots demos, meaning people, and
1: kratia, meaning power. Together, people power. Democracy is viewed as an ideology, a governmental system, or in the words of late civil rights activist John Lewis, not as a state, but as an act, for each generation to do its part. In a democracy, the people live under the laws of their
0: choosing. By consenting to follow those laws or acting to change them, the people's rights and freedoms are protected.
1: To many, democracy is the sacred foundation of America. To engage in civic duty, participate in elections, and consent to policy is what it means to be an American. For these people, the words United States and democracy are nearly synonyms.
0: To others, American democracy is not, has never been, and likely never will be. For them, the phrase, United States democracy, is a contradiction. I'm Noora Ahmed. And I'm Eliza Craig. And this is Democracy, a
1: podcast from Themester. In this episode, Eliza and I spoke with Dr. Hussein Benai, a professor in international studies. Dr. Benai, could you please introduce yourself?
2: I'm... Hussein Banai. I'm assistant professor of international studies at the Hamilton Lugar School of Global and International Studies at Indiana University. Uh, My research broadly focuses on democratic theory and history of liberalism specifically within that. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the development of democratic ideas and Mm -hmm. the proliferation of liberal values in the non-Western world, both through the lens of empire, but also, and especially through the lens of movements that are generated in response to legacy of especially Western liberalism, Western imperialism.
1: What is democratic backsliding? And could you give some current examples?
2: Sure. Democratic backsliding, which is a term that oftentimes is used interchangeably with the term democratic erosion refers to both either a rapid or gradual decline in democratic standards. Rapid decline refers to kind of very dramatic radical changes oftentimes to the constitutional democratic setup that a country has. Things like the suspension of parliament or the repealing of freedom of the press or freedom of assembly. Gradual decline is something that takes place over time and oftentimes refers to the decline in the norms of behavior by leaders, especially of how they address their democratic opponents, how they conduct themselves publicly, what their language, the language that they use towards their institutions is like, whether they think they're corrupt or led by the wrong elite, or whether the press is just producing, you know, fake news and misinformation, that process can over time erode confidence in democratic institutions. What leaders who behave this way do oftentimes undermine confidence in the reliability of democratic institutions and eventually create constituencies that doubt the legitimacy of democratic outcomes. So if a given court says decision X is the one that corresponds to our constitutional values, the supporters of a political party or a candidate who has for you know, the last few years been saying that the court is corrupt or this judge has X, Y, and Z affiliations will doubt those outcomes and say, no, that's just one opinion. It has nothing to do with our constitutional reading, et cetera. Democratic backsliding of the rapid sort is often associated with newly established democracies. So countries that have been in democratic transition are more prone to rapid democratic decline and the reversal of democratic institutions. So we see this in countries in Central and Eastern Europe, for instance, We've seen it in Turkey, where powerful executives like the current prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, or the prime minister and president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, how they've used the kind of populist ferment in the public, manipulated it to their advantage to go after their democratic opponents, to discredit their rivals, to actively remove judges and university professors and journalists from their positions by labeling them as uh, enemies of the public or enemies of the democracy even in, in those countries. All of that has happened in the last decade or so in places like Turkey, Hungary, Poland. And obviously these are countries that have recently transitioned to democracy. So these populist leaders have been able to very successfully manipulate public discourse to their advantage to really repeal those hard-won democratic standards uh, almost overnight. Sometimes they've done it by amping up public fear against the impending takeover of social values and customs by outsiders. Immigration and foreign migrants have been a very potent force for them to caricature. Um, So in, in, in Hungary, for instance, Orban has very effectively used the fear of the Islamicization of Hungary by migrants that are coming from Islamic countries to win elections, but to also have the public support very draconian laws that violate the European Union.
1: I didn't know Hungary had a lot of migrants or refugees coming to go and work there. I thought they were kind of a poor country of Europe.
2: No, well, they're one of the border countries of Europe. Mm-hmm. So you have to go through Hungary in order to get mm-hmm. to Germany or okay. many places. But also because some of those countries have more difficult kind of entrance or entryways into them, you have to go through either travel through a bunch of countries to get to them. Migrants mm-hmm. oftentimes don't make it there, or mm-hmm. they can't directly fly there, right? It's much easier for you to get on a boat and you know, go across the sea and then find yourself in some of these border states and then go from Mm. there into the heart Mm -hmm. of Europe. Many migrants don't make that journey all the way to the kind of industrialized countries that Mm -hmm. have employment for them. But regardless of whether Hungary actually is a major attractive destination for them or not, the point is that Orbán has used this fear Mm -hmm. to say that they will change our society and they will change European civilization in a way that will make it so much more Islamic and that the rest of Europe, the cosmopolitan liberal democracies that have the luxury of being on the edges, on the Western edges of Europe are Mm -hmm. asleep to this. So Mm -hmm. in fact, it gives them more credibility as a defender of the European Christian civilization. So in that respect, we see the kind of the very rapid democratic backsliding and happen in a country like, like Hungary. In a more gradual sense, democratic erosion or backsliding. I like the term democratic erosion associated Mm -hmm. with um, established democracies and democratic backsliding to less established democracy. Mm -hmm. Because erosion, like anything that erodes, it takes gradual time for it to get to another state. And in established Western democracies, we've seen this kind of gradual undermining of democratic standards when it comes both to the behavior of democratic politicians, small d democratic politicians, elected Mm -hmm. politicians, and in the kinds of democratic outcomes that we see that are produced, whether as a result of highly manipulative public referenda like Brexit decision in Britain, or in elections that are kind of games to advantage one party over the other in the case of gerrymandered district in the United States, for instance. We see the gradual decline happen both at the institutional level, but also at the level of political behavior in those countries over time as well. And you only have to have paid attention in the last three and a half, four years in the United States to see just how the discourse in this country has changed. Everything has turned into a binary. You're either for Immigration, or against it, you're either for public health measures, or you're against. It. You're either for taxes, or against it. Right? These binaries are produced; these black and white decisions, because of this kind of rise of polarization that we see in American society and in some other Western societies as well.
1: Would you say that the United States is currently experiencing democratic corrosion?
2: Um, I think. In the case of the United States, there is no question that democratic standards have declined over the course of the last decade, especially since the collapse of the financial system in the United States. But even before then, in the post-Cold War world, that conflict which American politicians talked about democratic values or how America had arrived at this endpoint in history we increasingly look back at it as something that really had in it needs of democratic decline over time. overconfidence in democracy or a sense of finality about where you are in a life cycle of democracy is is usually a very corrosive thing for for that democratic society because it reveals just how impoverished the idea of democracy is as an endpoint, not as an ongoing process that has to be rejuvenated, constantly attended to, requires vigilance, and is always grasping at a new frontier. And so in the United States, we really have seen this remarkable arc, right, from this moment of high democratic confidence in the 1990s to the gradual recognition that many of our social and economic structures have actually created a very hollow constitutional setup.
0: How do binaries and the polarization impede upon democracy and democratic values?
2: Oh, they have a huge impact because the success of democracy rests to a great extent on a sense of shared understanding and a shared reality of living in a society with others. Polarization tugs at a sense of shared reality. Polarization testifies to the fact that people have fundamentally different perceptions of the same reality, or they have two different realities altogether. I support party A because this party tells me that all that stands in the way of prosperity and freedom and liberty in this country is immigrants, right? The other side, I support Party B because I believe that all that stands in the way of prosperity, liberty, and you know all those wonderful constitutional values is the existence of the philosophy avowed by Party A, right? Mm. Polarization narrows our vision, and in democratic societies it oftentimes manipulates and focuses the mind of constituencies around highly, highly, highly divisive issues that actually are not in an ordinary sense something that divides people in communities or neighborhoods, but once elevated to a level of a life or death issues, it really helps political parties win power. And, and so in that sense, it has played a very corrosive role in the life of democracies. And it's something that is absolutely manufactured by media that are supportive of one political party over another. So
0: there's the important distinction between erosion and backsliding. So erosion being for longer standing democracies and backsliding being for newer democracies. How for both of those situations, is there a way to combat the backsliding or erosion? Or is that even the solution?
2: Well, there are different ideas about how you would counter democratic erosion or stop a country from backsliding. The surest way, or the one that has proven historically to be the most pertinent way, is the power of the public. Resistance to any kind of arbitrary power grab by those in power obviously slows down the pace of erosion. We see this being successful in countries that are more pluralistic and heterogeneous. This is where established democracies do better and have a better promise of out of erosion and backsliding than the newer democracies, right? Newer democracies tend to be ethnically more homogeneous. They tend to be far less polarized than established democracies that have generated pluralism of values and ideas that go beyond just a sense of ethnic identity, right? But in democracies that have been in transition, the sense of security, the sense of stability uh, usually results in trust in a kind of a strong man or a strong politician who would restore order and stability and, you know, keep out the disruptive forces that in the political agenda of this person uh, are the reason why the country is in the bad shape that it is. So there are different prescriptions as to what you do to slow down this process, but the surest way has been to generate social movements that counter the narrative that is being pushed down oftentimes by those in power.
1: I was curious if there was a connection between backsliding and nationalism. Yeah, nationalism generally
2: is a great check on democracy, meaning that it tends to tap into a strain of thought that uh, absolves leaders and people of appealing to democratic values, right? You only have to appeal to a sense of identity, a shared identity and not democratic values Sometimes you're arguing against those democratic values because you say identity is so much more important. I should say I have to distinguish between two strains of nationalism, right? There Mm -hmm. is ethno-nationalism, which is based squarely about Ethnic identity and national identity of a particular group, and civic nationalism. Civic nationalism is the belief that what constitutes a nation is not the particular characteristics of a people, their skin color, their mm-hmm. religious heritage, their lineage, etc., but rather their institutions. Established democracies, the reason why they're established is because they have um, developed a sense of civic nationalism. That doesn't mean like ethno-nationalism has never been prominent in their societies, but civic nationalism is something that has always competed or pushed against ethno-nationalism. So in, American, in the case of American democracy, for instance, you have had founding intention with the idea of a white supremacist community that has had slavery and segregation deeply embedded in its national culture this tension with a sense of American constitutional values and Bill of Rights as the beacon of liberty to the rest of the world, right? This is a country that says its greatest asset is the fact that it has a small d democratic constitution. The, it recognizes right. the inalienable rights of people in its Declaration of Independence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, that has always been at odds with the actual experience of people in American society, but that's what also has allowed for minorities and people who have not been part of the white majority to always contest the way in which the majority has ruled and over time, these rights for themselves and has gotten the majority to concede their privileges. So civic nationalism has played a great role in that regard in the United States. Um, ethno-nationalism is far more toxic because it holds up a particular ethnic identity as the source of greatness of a nation. And in the case of newer, less established democracies, we find that these leaders tap into a sense of ethno-nationalism that either has very racist undertones embedded in it, or it openly, under the guise of a commonly shared religion or cultural heritage, is really nodding towards a particular race being more superior than others. Okay. And so that variant, ethnic nationalism, has especially been corrosive. Um, civic nationalism can coexist with democracy. And some scholars have argued, even that it is necessary for a successful democracy to have to cultivate civic like nationalism because it allows people to buy into something greater than themselves, right? You've heard this notion of America as an idea right? It's not a nation. It's an idea that we see in the Statue of Liberty. We see it in the Lincoln Memorial. We see it in our buildings and in the kind of imagery that we associate that are oftentimes depersonalized. It's not around a white race. It's not around these kind of monocultural markers of identity. And so civic nationalism, in that regard is important to get to people to care about why democracy in a particular nation matters.
0: So does movements like the Black Power Movement, is that considered ethno-nationalism?
2: Not necessarily, because obviously the social context and the historical context of the emergence of each of these movements matters a great deal. right? Right. The the kind of militant movements that we've seen amongst minority populations in countries that are dominated by a particular race in, in the 1900s and and we may see pockets of it in the world today, are oftentimes responding to a particular set of grievances. What helps, I think, distinguish between these movements is where power is located. Who has the material sources of power and the advantages that come with it on their side compared to those who have not? Strategies that we see kind of associated with You know, the Black Power movement or Black nationalist movements in the 60s and 70s that we saw were were largely in response to an alternative view of civil rights that very much to move away from struggles within the existing democratic or constitutional setup in the United States. By, By talking about separation, look, we'll never be equal under this system, so separate, right? Well, that generated you know more elaboration on the part of the other African-American activists who thought that, no, you could very well actually use this constitutional setup to win these democratic values." So the two kind of had this symbiotic relationship.
0: So with that concrete example of American mind, I'm curious about another example of ethno-nationalism versus civic mm-hmm. in another country, maybe Iran.
2: In the case of Iran or countries that are kind of outside of this, Formal democratic setup. I think it's important to remember that these are countries that are neither new democracies nor established democracies, but countries that could possibly transition to becoming democratic. The Constitution of the Islamic Republic of Iran is very clear about what the ultimate source of authority in that polity is. And the ultimate source of authority is um, religion, as represented through the office of the supreme leader. So you have this person who's basically appointed for life who gets to ultimately decide what is a good and what is a bad outcome for the general public. They'll have elections. There are electoral aspects to uh, Iranian politics. Iranians elect parliaments, parliament, they elect a president, but they don't enjoy democratic rights the way you would, and certainly not liberal democratic rights. They would establish democracies, meaning that they cannot just freely say what they wish, what they think about the government without there being repercussions or them getting censored or worse. So that subset of countries is the question of democratic backsliding or erosion doesn't even apply. The question is, you know, where the democratic or progress toward democracy might be at any given time.
0: Is American democracy the model to follow if that is something that should happen or were to happen?
2: Not necessarily. There are many democratic models that are obviously the products of their own unique circumstances and historical trajectories. One of the problems with the democratic triumphalism of the 1990s was thinking that just because the Soviet Union was defeated and America emerged victorious and uh, as the quote unquote leader of the free world, that that model was now the thing that everyone else had to emulate and live by. And obviously we saw how catastrophically That played out in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, where democracy and bringing democracy into these countries, based on this kind of Jeffersonian notion of democracy, was just so ill-conceived, not because these societies were not ready, as condescendingly was thought by some supporters of democracy promotion, but rather because democracy is something that each country has to organically develop for itself. It has to be in conversation with its own history, with its own political currents and its social and economic trajectories at any given time, just as it's been the case in the United States. It's not a template that you can just you know, put on a country and boom, they turn democratic. And we've seen over and over again that actually what, where there has been a forced democratization on the country, usually by way of elections, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the outcomes have actually been the opposite of what those who were pushing for these things we're hoping. Oftentimes the most reactionary, the most anti-democratic, the most anti-liberal forces win office. And that has to do not with the society or the larger forces at play, but with the balance of power in those societies. Those people can intimidate people from voting. They can get their side to turn out and keep the rest of the people at bay. The institutions are just not resilient enough to be able to support that kind of democratic participation.
0: I think that this question has been answered. Um, It's about whether or not Democracy can be exported. It's up to a people you
2: have to think about countries and borders as arbitrary constructions that historically have ended up being what it is. I mean, if you look at the map of the world, and you know these lines are constructed by human beings. You don't find them if you go from the International Space Station. There's nothing that, with the exception of the Great Wall of China, that's also partially eroded. There's no border lines from space. We create borders on maps that we oftentimes arbitrarily draw because of the historical forces. We know out of the legacy of empire that a lot of the countries and the continents of the world, their borders are artificial. And that's why we have the prevalence of civil wars and cross-border warfare. I mean, you only have to look at the map of Africa, for instance, to see the prevalence of straight lines as borders. It couldn't possibly be that people so neatly divide into this country versus that country, right? Nigeria, Kenya, Democratic Republic of Congo, people don't neatly divide across these lines. Those lines were drawn because of the struggles that came after empire left, and oftentimes were drawn by European imperialists. Can Israel ask Israel and Palestine about it, or Jordan, or Syria and Lebanon? So recognizing that countries are historically contingent, they're not these entities that actually correspond to where people's identities are at any given time. We have to be humble as to what democracy means in each of these settings. It has to correspond to those respective histories. It's not an accident of history that established democracies are in the countries that tend to rule over the rest of the globe. It's not an accident of history that democracies tend to be more secure in countries that have waterways all around them. Island nations do very well with democracy compared to non-island nations. Why? Because they're less susceptible to imperial dominance. The oldest democracy in the world is the United Kingdom, and it sits in the top corner of Europe. It has had a channel that's allowed it to kind of defend itself very robustly, but it also gives it this kind of privileged position from which to project its maritime empire to the rest of the world. So the British Navy literally became the vehicle for spreading ideas that the British wanted in certain areas. So democracy corresponds with these complex histories in ways that ultimately are going to be organic to these histories. We can try and force democratic experiences on other people. The socioeconomic and political shape of those societies will organically form and define democratic experience to its own um, historical trajectory.
1: We'd like to thank Dr. Banai for discussing democratic backsliding and the rise in nationalism. The music for the intro and outro is Moonrise by Chad Crouch, provided by freemusicarchive.org under a non-commercial license. Thank you so much for listening. This is Democracy, a podcast by The Masters.